Hi, I'm Amy. Hi, I'm Roisin. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome to Yonic Boom, the podcast where three deadly feminist midwives discuss women's reproductive and sexual health. This week, we're talking about birth. Hello, hello. Yeah. Hello. Hello. How is everybody? Greetings. Greetings, indeed. Greetings from Google Meet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Will we jump right in? Let's, let's jump right jump in. Right let's, in. Okay. let's try and uh, we're going to try and keep the time to a, a reasonable amount. Did we have imagine. an episode before where someone kept saying this is a whistle stop episode of? <laughs> that sounds like something I would say. <laughs> <laughs> this is a one hour, 45 minute whistle stop tour <laughs> through. Precisely. Um, so for this episode, um, we have decided actually to split over two um, episodes because um, mm-hmm. we have a lot to discuss so we're hoping to talk about all things birth um so a little refresher on kind of structure of maternity services where you can give birth with whom you can give birth in ireland and um, different types of birth um, and some stats on what birth in ireland looks like in the last number of years and then we're going to go into detail this episode about kind of vaginal and instrumental births and what you need to know or expect for so we had brought you guys kind of up to where you're ready to push your baby out. So we're going to yeah. talk about kind of the physiology of that and what happens kind of in the immediate post-birth moments. Um, so like perineal trauma, third stage of labor, all that kind of thing. Sorry, I'm going to cough. <clears throat> um, and then the second half of this episode, which will be a separate episode in itself, we're going to talk about cesarean birth. Um. And obviously we hope to wow you with our usual smattering of evidence and critical analysis. Um, so that's kind and of... our humour. Does that sound... Have I covered all of our angles, gals? Yeah, yes. I think so. Okay, cool. So just a little refresh. I think we talked about this in a really early episode, kind of structure of maternity services and what you can get here in Ireland. I'm pretty sure. It's been so yeah. long. <laughs> I think we talked about that when we were talking about booking into the hospital. Yeah. We did, yeah. So yeah. basically in Ireland, you have options of a hospital, which some people call an obstetric unit, um, a midwifery-led unit in Ireland. There's no standalone ones, so some people would refer to them as birth centres. Um, but in Ireland, they're co-located with an obstetric unit or general hospital campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously then at home, um, depends on where you're living, qualification for home birth HSE scheme. Um, and then there's private home birth in Ireland with private midwives um, that you have to have health insurance to go with them. Or can you pay them I, like cash money? You can, you can pay them cash okay. or yeah. some health insurance companies will cover some private midwife schemes. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about the insurance bit like do you have to have health insurance for them to be covered to come into you but you can pay them cash Um, you can pay them cash but the hsc home birth midwives are are free yeah like that's a free same as you're entitled to everything in the maternity hospital you're entitled to a home birth with your hsc midwife if you come under their umbrella for free yeah you you do get if you have health insurance and you go under the hsc home birth scheme as far as i know you do get more visits Mm. okay yeah interesting yeah. Um, and then obviously you can free birth in Ireland, which I think we've kind of raised a little bit before, um, is where you're birthing without uh, 
a healthcare professional's assistance, which we are not necessarily endorsing here. We're just saying it happens. There are reasons why mm. people do it. Um, I don't actually know off the top of my head how frequent it is in Ireland. Yeah, I'm, I couldn't find... Um trying to look up figures and it's obviously difficult it, to know. It's very yeah. difficult to know. Because there will be people who would say potentially um, that the baby came too quickly for them to have made it. So yeah. you're not necessarily, people may not disclose the fact that it was a planned free birth, unassisted yeah, yeah, birth, birth at home. Yeah. So it is difficult. Yeah. It's an interesting one, I suppose. I guess like people do have their reasons why. They want to do it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then obviously within all of those uh, places that you can give birth, there is, as we said, like private, semi-private and public care. Still divided that way in maternity mm. services. Um, ultimately, you will always have a midwife at your birth, unless you're free birthing. Um so even if you've booked in to have a private consultant or a semi-private, it's not necessarily a guarantee that they will always be at your birth. You will have a midwife yeah. looking after you for the duration of your labor. They will also be there at the birth if the doctor is also there. Yeah. The midwife stays with you the whole time. So you can expect to have a midwife there with you all of the time. Um, so that's kind of like a little recap on where and who you can have your baby with. And then just to go through the types of birth, I think this is probably an important discussion for us to have. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I notice sometimes when people are talking to me about their births or their plans for birth, they think mm. because I'm a midwife, I have a lot of preconceived ideas or judgments about what birth should and shouldn't be. Don't yeah. know if you get that a lot when Pete, when like you tell people you're a midwife, they're almost apologizing to you for certain things that they want or that they have had in their births. Like, yeah, they yeah. feel like they have to make excuses for certain things or if they know that you're. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I think it would be important for all of us to say that for you can correct me if you disagree with me, but I don't think you do. Um, that all births are births. So yes. yeah, absolutely. What you might even go ahead. Sorry. No, you know, like when people are like, oh, like talk about delivery. Like I really try not to use the word delivery because I'm like, I'm always like, oh, people deliver post and people deliver pizzas, but like babies are born, and you know, all yeah, as you say, all births are births. Yeah. Um, like I don't particularly find the language jarring myself and we had like a little discussion about that um, when I did my hypnobirthing course that like mm -hmm. some people like to use certain language for mm. um, some people don't like to use the word pain per se some people don't like to use the word contraction some people don't like to use the word delivery they like yeah. to say like babies are born or like some people don't like to hear healthcare professionals saying I delivered that baby because yeah. mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. the woman and her baby who got her baby there do you yeah. know yeah so I think that's interesting and we get that I think a lot when we talk in terms of normal 
or natural deliveries. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's an important distinction to be made there. So it, just for people to know what you might hear uh, term wise in um, discussions around birth are um, uh, words like normal delivery, natural delivery, vaginal delivery. Some people will refer to it as an SVD, which is a spontaneous vaginal delivery. Mm-hmm. You might hear about instrumental births or vacuum or forceps are used for that type of birth. Mm-hmm. And then some people will talk about cesarean sections. Some people refer to them as surgical births. Some people, I've heard them being called abdominal births. Belly so births. lots of belly birth, lots belly of different birth, terminology. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think... It's an important clarification when we talk about normal deliveries mm. versus natural deliveries and kind of the um, conversation that's uh, sort of trawled around in the media about that a little bit. Mm. And kind of, yeah. I feel like anyway, it sort of pits women against each other a little bit. Yeah, it's trying when, to create a hierarchy. Like when we healthcare professionals talk about a normal delivery generally, it's, n- I don't, I don't think anyway, you can, you know, obviously there's a whole experience out there and not to dismiss someone's experience. I think about a vaginal delivery as being like that. They use that term interchangeably. Yeah. And we talk about normal a lot. And we use it interchangeably, maybe with low risk. Mm-hmm. And I suppose from our learning as midwives, we're always taught that what our expertise is the normality of pregnancy. Yeah, It's not to say that the alternatives are abnormal per se, but no. that this, this is our like baseline of how we expect things should be. Mm. Yeah. But there's no judgment in that terminology, I think. That's a really, I think that's a really important point because there was so much kind of media coverage on natural birth. And I think it's important to say that we actually don't use the term natural birth to describe deliveries in hospital. No. Like we don't talk about, you know, we would never say she had a natural delivery. It's normal delivery because we're talking about the level of intervention and therefore. Yeah kind of it's a, basically a risk assessment for the yeah. woman's needs exactly. following delivery. Absolutely. Exactly. And so I, yeah, that's kind of our main concern. And I think within that normal and natural, a lot of kind of the media frenzy around that is that natural and normal are conflated with one another. Mm-hmm. Mm. But a lot of people when they're talking about a natural birth are talking about a drug free or an yeah. intervention free yeah. birth yeah and that's a very different thing than what we would say is a normal birth because we would say any like i would still say normal delivery if someone had had an induction but that's intervention yes yes you know what yeah. I mean? yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah um but i think like everyone's experience of that language is really valid and if it's really important to you you should let whoever is looking after you in your birth or whoever's going to be around you during your pregnancy labor and birth know if it's language that matters to you 
So like when I was doing my hypnobirthing yeah. class, the teacher was saying, if you don't want the midwife or the doctors who are looking after you to use the word pain when they're talking about contractions or contractions when they're talking about contractions, you need to tell them I'd prefer if you use the term wave or search. Yeah. So the same way, I suppose, if you're talking about your type of birth, that all births are completely valid births. And the words that you want to use to describe your birth are important to you. Mm -hmm. So to make that really clear, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But know that I I think in in the majority that midwives aren't aren't thinking about it like that. What's is her birth normal or not normal? Like we're thinking of, is it a vaginal birth, an instrumental birth? Yeah. Yeah. Cesarean birth that's what's going on in our head but sometimes obviously the kind of perception of that or how you intend that doesn't come across Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you remember um I think it was a year or two ago there was an article published about a study that was talking about perfect birth and it was saying the rate of perfect birth in Ireland is and it was like a minuscule amount and it obviously kind of rightly received a lot of backlash because the perfect birth was deemed, I think, as someone who didn't have pain relief, spontaneous onset, vaginal delivery, required no intervention. And I don't even, I think they didn't even need stitches or something, didn't need suturing. And it was just like, you know, the perfect birth could be, as you said, it could be any number of different scenarios. It could be an epidural. It could be, you know, it could be a cesarean. Yeah. It could well, be two, a- anything, you know. There was like two incidences in work for me, probably in the last year, that really actually made me think about this. We had um, a woman come in whose baby was born really, really quickly at home. Mm. And she was coming in um, for like after birth care to the hospital. Um, and everyone was just like, applauding her and being like you're so amazing like kind of saying you had the aren't you so lucky you had the perfect birth Mm -hmm. like you just did it and she was so traumatized she found it Mm. so upsetting and she was like that's not what I wanted for my birth and Mm. she was totally shell-shocked and she was like it's really hard to um kind of rationalize everyone telling me I'm brilliant and amazing and so lucky with these feelings of like, I didn't want it to happen that way. That's not what, like, and she was frightened, like, by the whole experience. Um, And she said she wouldn't wish that on anyone. Exactly. Whereas, like, sometimes I think we get into our headspace of, like, no intervention, that's amazing, like, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And then, um, I can't remember who said it to me. I think it was a colleague who said it to me. It could have been one of you. So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> that when um, midwives come down with families from the labor ward and they uh, help them into the bed on the postnatal ward and they hand over to me, the postnatal midwife, they're saying mm-hmm. like, oh, isn't she fantastic? She did it all on her own and she did this and she did that and she didn't have any intervention and da 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 da. And you forget that you're right next to someone who's had all the interventions or a cesarean Mm. birth and that that can come across 
a little bit judgy that we're saying like one makes you amazing and fantastic mm. and one doesn't. We don't realize we're just individually congratulating this yeah. particular family on what they've achieved. But mm. that maybe six or nine other people can hear it and they think, does that make me not? What yeah. was my birth the wrong kind of birth? Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, always made like those two things have made me think about how I talk about it. Yeah. Very I find it really interesting. Very good. Mm. Mm. So Tara, tell us what happens. We got up to 10 centimeters in our labor <laughs> episode. So yeah. what's next? Okay. Let me scroll down. Don't scare me, Tara. <laughs> 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 I have to do this in eight to 10 weeks, please. <laughs> Listen, I'm not here to scare anybody, okay? That's not that's not what I want to do. All right. But I think what I'll just do is like a, a rundown of what we would call the mechanism of labor. So that's basically what is actually happening between you and your baby pushing your baby out. What do you think? Yeah. That, yeah? Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry, I okay, thought that cool. was a quiz. I was like, sorry, are you not going to tell us? <laughs> this is why we asked Go. you to do this section, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I guess I'll start by saying that um, the majority of times when you're pushing your baby out vaginally, they have their chin tucked well down onto their chest and they're coming out with their face towards the maternal back passage. Yeah, does that? Sorry, I'm, yeah. trying, I'm like using my hands a lot here now, which obviously isn't going to come across on the, on the I box. do it constantly. Air yes. quotes. Doing like a kind of a circle. <laughs> yeah. Motion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're facing your um, bum. They're facing your bum. Yeah. And actually, you know what? When I used to teach, when I taught antenatal classes with Ali Murphy, um, who had four Friend babies. Friend of the pod. Friend of the friend of the show, yeah. She used to say, she used to say, Oh, I used to tell my kids, you came out, the first thing you saw was my bum. Um, but uh yeah, so most babies will come out with their face down towards the um back passage, um, and most of the time they will have been leaning to the left side for the labor. Sometimes they'll have been leaning to the right. However, babies can come out looking up. Um, some people call that like sunny side up or stargazer babies. But I suppose for the purpose of the mechanism of labor and what like like what Roshi was saying, like what we expect to happen in labor. I'm just going to talk about kind of if a baby comes down in like an LOA position. So that's that's where they're looking towards the, the maternal back and their back has been towards the left side, the mom's left side for the labor. Um, OK, so throughout the labor um, with regular effective um, contractions or tightenings of the womb, the baby's head has descended down into the pelvis. Um, and as the baby's head has descended down into the pelvis, um, they have tucked their chin well down onto their chest. So this is what's called flexion. And um, if you look um, on spinningbabies.com, uh, they have a lot of focus on getting really good well flexed babies so love spinning babies yeah Such so a good website. The, the, the better that the, the chin is tucked well down onto the chest um that really helps the baby be in an optimal position um for the birth so the head has descended the chin is well tucked well down onto the chest and um i suppose what we could say you know is as you're 
um, bearing down as you're pushing the, the the baby down. It takes a lot of time. Like babies don't just fly out. And certainly um, we would expect typically that first babies will take. I mean, what would you guys say? How much pushing? An hour? If like minimal. It totally depends on so many things, doesn't it? Like it's yeah. it's really hard to call. It depends on um, mom's position. It depends on posi- position of the baby. But yeah, getting I was that really say, good flexion is really you're helpful. Starting at I where suppose. you're starting from, yeah. So it depends on mom's position. It depends on the position of the baby. Um, and it sometimes can it can on just the size be of like baby. getting into that rhythm of feeling of, where you're pushing. Of, yeah. So sometimes you can be yeah. pushing for a little period of time. Till you yeah. get it and then you yeah. start to move your baby. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And also, I suppose a lot of women, as they're approaching that kind of fully dilated, as they're in their transition period, they might just be bearing down spontaneously then as well. But we're not we're not saying, OK, you're pushing your baby right now. So it's a whole spectrum, you know, yeah. and I would say it's really impossible to call an actual time on it. Um, OK, so. You're bearing down and the baby is coming down through the birth canal. Now, they don't just come down and fly out straight away. And I suppose the reason for that is that they're softening the tissues um, as as they come down. And did, we talked about, I think, perineal massage. Did we talk about it in our pregnancy, in our second and third I'm, trimester episode? I have flashbacks of you doing like doing the, the thing. massage thing. On your hand. Thing, yes. I have yeah. memories of you doing the kind of the motion. Okay. All right. Um, so so basically, I suppose if you've been doing the perineal massage, you're kind of used to this feeling of pressure in the perineum and the baby is just gently putting more pressure down on the tissues as they're emerging. Um, like babies that come out very, very quickly can cause um, trauma um, or that can lead to trauma. It's not that they're causing trauma on their way into the world. <laughs> like, but <laughs> um, So for that reason, they don't come out really quickly and um you know instantly yeah you want you want everything to be stretched to be stretching slowly yeah Yeah, exactly exactly um and we'll talk more about that kind of side of things in a few minutes but so basically what's happening so the baby has descended right down into the into the pelvis to the point that if the midwife um puts her hands on the abdomen we can no longer kind of feel any or much of the baby's head what you'll feel just really is the baby's shoulders they flex their chin right down onto their chest and then so as they come down through the birth canal they need to turn a corner so they need to go around the symphysis pubis so for women who are pushing um in a in a semi-recumbent position so on the back or even sometimes on the side um you know you're kind of level with gravity if you're on the side or you have to work slightly against gravity you know when when somebody is is on their back um and when we talked before a little bit about positions and stuff and we talked about being like upright for birth um um you know I suppose what you're hoping there is that gravity is going to help everything um but if you think about somebody being in an all fours position for their birth um they're working with everything there. They're working, gravity is working for them. Um, and, you know, the baby is descending down and is is coming, 
I, 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 I'm struggling to find the words this morning. I'm sorry. <laughs> they're no, they're descending down, and you're hoping that the, this it's going to help with a with the uh, length of time that this yeah. is that it's going on. Um, okay, but they still. I mean, they still do all the same moves. Whether you're whether you're um, you know upright or whether you're on your side or whether you're you're in a semi recumbent position or in a squat position, they're all they're doing all the same moves. Um, okay, so as the baby comes down. Um, generally your midwife will say, you know, if, if she's having a look, um, we'll see the labia gaping and we can see a little bit of the baby's head. So sometimes we'll say, oh, we can see the head in the distance. Um, and then obviously we, we see more and more of the head as it emerges. Roshin, are you okay? Yeah, you sorry. Face there. Um, just being kicked. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay, I thought you were having a really strong response to Tara's description. (laughs) You're terrifying me. No, you're not. No, I just got an absolute wallop. Sorry. (laughs) So, um, so as the, as the descent goes on, we see more and more of the baby's head emerging. Um, and then, you know, if somebody wants to, they can touch the top of their baby's head. You know, once we can see it there between the, um, labia and then what's known as crowning so you know like when you watch like movies about birth or when you watch Eeyore or any of those like things where somebody's giving birth it's always she's crowning she's crowning (laughs) (laughs) and it's like this is like this is like the thing so the crowning stage is basically so as you're pushing the baby the baby comes down a bit then goes back a bit then comes down a bit then comes back a bit then goes down a bit then comes back a bit but the crowning stage is where basically the widest diameter of the head is emerging and the baby is no longer going to slip back so the widest diameter of the head is emerging and as as it comes there's a a lot of sensation of stretching um maybe a sensation of burning um and Amy you're going to talk more aren't you about like what what we can do like warm compresses and that kind of thing like at that stage yeah um but basically some people would refer to it as the the ring of fire um and that's just it's just because the tissues are being really stretched but again for anyone who's done the kind of like perineal massage and that they're going to know a little bit of what that sensation is like, like a little bit of the, the skin and the labia being under pressure. Um, okay, so um, as the baby is crowning and the widest diameter of the head is emerging, what is actually happening is that the baby has gone from being really flexed with their chin down on their chest to um, extensions. So they're actually stretching their head from their chin down on their chest to um, kind of a sniffing position or to sort of what would be like looking up. And I'm also demonstrating this right now. I know, I was like, this visual is really good, but it's of no use to anyone who's listening to this. Um, We might record Tara, if you could do that, we could do a little boomerang of you doing it on the Insta account. Yeah, sure, I'll do that later. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so what they're doing is they're they're bringing from their chin down onto their chest to their their chin up, or they're basically looking up. Um, And at this stage, then we'll see the baby's face uh, sweep the perineum, and their chin will emerge and sit on the outside. Um, So then, what happens is um, a simultaneous internal and external rotation so the baby's head um 
and shoulders will realign into a straight line. They've turned their head slightly so that they can be born and then their um, shoulder hits the pelvic floor and rotates and as their shoulder rotates, so does the head. So um, it's two small manoeuvres that are each one eighth of a circle, but you see it on the outside as what we call restitution. So that's where the head turns a quarter of a circle. And then when the head has turned a quarter of a circle, usually then with the next contraction, um, the baby's first their shoulder at the front is born and then the the posterior um shoulder is born so that's kind of known as as expulsion basically or as uh birth um so that's the stage where um you know if you want to reach down and catch your baby and then you try to follow what's called the curve of caris so that's where um the baby comes out and up so basically onto the um mom's stomach or you know um so say for somebody who's birthing on all fours um that they would kind of look down between their legs basically and bring the baby towards them you know in a bit in a yeah it is the best (laughs) bit um so um so yeah that's kind of that's that's kind of that's kind of it really guys that's it i mean that's you know no big deal (laughs) bish bash 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 your baby's out um and i suppose um for anyone who's thinking about birthing in water now, obviously it's not a hugely um, uh, common option in Ireland. You know, obviously home births, um, MLUs and some of the hospitals will offer it. But, um, you know, for this whole time, for the whole mechanism of labour, for the, the actual birth, um, your midwife is is totally hands off until, until the baby comes out. Whereas... Um, your midwife may have hands on your perineum, um, guide the head and guide the shoulders if you're birthing on land. So I suppose just kind of worth, you know, bearing that in I mind. I love that expression, birth is totally birthing on land. Birthing on, on land. land. I know, I feel like it's like a pirate <laughs> thing or something. <laughs> there is actually a good dear Fanny question, um, which I think we can slot in here and ask you. And I think mm-hmm. we've been asked this before and all of us have been asked this multiple times. We may have even answered it on the show before. Um, people obviously want to know about poo. People want to know about pooing. Yeah. Oh, I mean, lads, look, it's going to happen. The poo will come. I'm trying to convince it's myself like... it's not going to happen. <laughs> you, Most people do a little bit of a poo. A little bit yeah. of poo gets squeezed out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I suppose years the thing ago is, used is to that do you an can't enema be like Because we're like, it's fine, it's fine. But for loads of people, it's a massive... They have, it's the thing that they worry about going into yeah. labour and it's the I, thing that all women just say, like, I'm just really uncomfortable. I'm really embarrassed. I'm just really worried I'm going to do a poo. Yeah. And I always try and have that conversation. Like, yeah. you know, where they, if they bring it up, like we, and you try and kind of have a bit of a like laugh about it and just yeah. be like, yeah, you probably will, but it's fine. You won't notice because the baby's head is so much I remember going looking on. after so a, much a couple on. and like she was obviously worried about it, maybe hadn't vocalized it. Um, it happened as it does. And her mm-hmm. partner told her she'd done it. <laughs> yeah, I've looked after and those I was couples like, before. So tell her like, that. What are you doing? Yeah. She doesn't need to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's to any birth partner. Generally, like I think don't a lot of a it. lot of women don't notice that they've done it. No, they don't. No, no. And also, like a baby's just about to come out of there as well. Yeah, which 
is way better. Something a lot cuter than a poo is just around the corner. <laughs> Literally around the corner. <laughs> yes. Um, so I hope that uh, whistle stop tour. <laughs> Love it. Uh, um, you haven't given us like an acronym or a, a little phrase in a long time, Tara. Oh, jeepers. I don't have one for the birth. Do frogs in Canada ride in pink limos? What? For the mechanism of labour, isn't it? Go on, Amy. Go on. Tell us what it stands for. (laughs) (laughs) I think I might have added a couple of... I think I might have added it. Anyway, that's getting a bit too kind of student midwife studying for finals kind of stuff. Um, You probably, you know, you don't need to know all the stages. No. It's just kind of for interest. Yeah. You won't be quizzed on it. No, no, but I suppose just to have a an idea. But it's great to have to know. And there's also there's really good um we should find a good little kind of um video to put on our to link in the show notes mm-hmm. of the mechanism of labor because it's really interesting to see all the little things that your baby's doing. Yeah. To yeah. Get Amy, out of there. I, so I cool. found I found your acronym, Amy, if you'd like to. I link it. We'll link it in the show notes if you really want to. <laughs> it is very much. I just didn't want to make a show myself and like forget stuff or add in an extra thing. Do frogs in Canada ride in a pink limo? There you go. There you go. Nice um, one. There Amy. you go. I did forget to say actually earlier in our episode um, that it's there are uh, it's roughly split into thirds what type of birth you'll have. Okay. Roughly yes. in Ireland across like maternity units, but we'll also link in our show notes just while we're talking about all the things we're putting in our show notes. Um, <laughs> some places where you can fifty percent of the episode will be in the show notes, like when we used to say we'll do this in another episode. <laughs> we will one day. We'll put up a little thing where you can look up some statistics for your individual maternity units, and just mm-hmm. to know that you can also ask at your maternity unit for their. Annual report statistics of yes. what their breakdown of types of birth they have. Yeah. Where you're going to have your baby. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, okay, so you've had your baby. The next thing um, after your placenta is born, which actually will we talk about the placenta first? Yeah. Probably well, makes sense given as that's the next thing that happens. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, who's am I? Am I going to talk about placentas? Yeah, no, I love a placenta. You love a placenta. you love a placenta. <laughs> <laughs> I told my um, in-laws about Lotus birth on our family Zoom call last week, and I terrified all of them. <laughs> and I told them about the teddy bears you can get made out of your placenta, and they were all just like, "Are you doing that?" I was like, "No, it's just, it was just very funny no." You're just getting face. the jewelry, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Placenta jewellery. Yes. Anyway, go ahead, Tara. <laughs> um, okay, so I suppose, yeah, we talk about the third stage of labour as the birth of the placenta. So um, the third stage starts with the birth of the baby and ends once the placenta um, is born. The placenta and membranes um, are also known as the afterbirth by by a lot of people. Um, and I remember a funny story where a friend of mine during our training was looking after someone and she was having like her third baby this woman and she had her mum with her for her support person and um the midwife said to her okay uh we'll just get organized now for the the afterbirth 
and she was like oh my god get it out of me get it out of me like she was totally freaked and the mom just leaned over like the voice of wisdom and was like I had that on all mine as well (laughs) (laughs) that's brilliant and the midwife was like I'm sure you did yes I'm glad that you had a placenta and membranes on all your babies as well that's brilliant yeah um, but yeah, no, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that story. I just thought it was. I thought it was great. But um, very good. Some people are totally freaked by the placenta, um, and I just love them. I think they're amazing. But I guess you know people are people are kind of weirded out by a lot of things. Um, so that's you know that's absolutely fine if you are. I love um, showing them to people. I know. Yeah, and after so I'm like, do you want to see where your baby was? Uh, yeah like I always encourage like if I do a parent ed class I'll always encourage people to to have a look at the placenta and get a tour of their baby's first home and um yeah, yeah just really you know really see it I, I do think they're amazing and I suppose like worth noting like your midwife is always going to be inspecting the placenta anyway so why not just have a look at it while she's having a look at it as well um so um basically there there's two types of management um so active management um, of the third stage and physiological management of the third stage. Um, so these are two different approaches to the management of the birth of the placenta um, and the control of bleeding postnatally. Um, and I suppose what we are always trying to avoid is getting into into a scenario where we have mixed management of the third stage, because actually that's kind of a, a danger zone, really. Um, shout out to... Um, Cecily Begley, who is an Irish midwife and lecturer, who is a worldwide expert on third stage um, management. Did you guys have any lectures from her when you were training? Did you guys have any lectures from her when you were training? Yes, we did. Yeah, Yeah. she's very interesting. I just like blown away all the time by how much like knowledge she's just like dropping like. research paper names and years and dates and everything i was just like oh my god how does she keep this all straight in her head i know she's so good and she explains things so well yes yeah yeah she really does um i suppose just to say like typical practice in ireland really is active management you know it's um so what is active management Clamping and cutting of the cord, administration of a synthetic oxytocin drug um, into a muscle um, and then controlled cord traction just basically as a way to to get the placenta and membranes out when it's ready to come. And physiological management um, is an option for people who are healthy, well, low risk, um, with a good iron level, they've had a spontaneous onset of their labor and they've had absolutely no interference in their labor whatsoever. Um, so looking internationally, like the WHO recommends active management, but then, you know, with some of these things with the WHO, like they're making this recommendation as a worldwide recommendation. Mm. And if you look at, you know, developing nations you're looking at people who mightn't have a um a really high iron level um and where a postpartum hemorrhage is catastrophic um, catastrophic Catastrophic. yeah yeah Yeah. so where they're not going to have the resources to be able to they may not necessarily have the medications to stop the bleeding and they won't have the resources to be able to do that initial like first step exactly can prevent a lot of issues yeah down the line subsequently Yeah. yeah Yeah. Um, 
So, yes, I suppose each one, well, like I say, typical practice in Ireland really is, is, is active management. And, um, I remember looking into a project, into this for a project when we were training and it was kind of like, you know, active management is what's done if the woman or the person requests physiological management, well then based on a case by case basis, this can be discussed. Um, and I think, is that the same? Like, is that what you guys would kind of? Yeah, it is. Yes. Like it's kind of, it's hospital policy, I suppose, dictates what you are being offered. Mm. And as with everything, you will be offered kind of standardized care. It is up to you to do some level of research to decide if you want to take that standardized care or if you want to do something else and you will be supported in that choice. But you will obviously be given kind of the reasons and, the you know, I suppose it depends on what happens on the day in your labor, whether or not it's suitable for you to go for a physiological birth. Yeah. Um, physiological delivery of third stage or you know would it be better for you to have the active management so that's something that's discussed but that is something I think people should realize that it is being offered as standard across the board I could be I stand to be corrected on this but Ireland does active management of third stage like most countries well I think do you know what I mean in the main as well we have like we're majority of our births are happening in obstetric led units mm-hmm. so the anticipation is that there's some level of intervention in your birth already yeah. so the natural next step is to be able to manage the third stage to prevent complications yeah yes yeah um yeah so so yeah as Roisin said they're basically the the aim of active management of the third stage is to prevent um uh postpartum hemorrhage or significant bleeding after the birth of the baby what actually happens after the birth of the baby is that as the womb is as the uterus is involuting um the um crisscross muscle fibers in the in the middle layer of the womb in the myometrium um cross over really tightly and cut off the blood supply basically that has been feeding the placenta. So as that blood supply is cut off um, and as the womb is involuting, I'm also doing, can you see, I'm just like, this is my yeah, hand motion for third stage. Um, then the placenta just shears itself off the womb wall of the uterus of the womb and um, then is, is kind of ready to be born. Typically uh, with, and active management, you're looking at having the placenta out, you know, minutes after the baby is is born um, with a physiological management of the third stage. You could be looking at maybe up to an hour um, and things that help the placenta to come with a physiological third stage are um, getting the baby on the breast um, because the, the breastfeeding will help the, the uterus to contract um, sitting the woman out onto a birthing stool or sitting her onto the toilet with a with a bowl in it will help um, and gravity will help it to um, come. Typically, even with an active management, um, you know, there's a couple of really tight contractions, but it's not particularly painful to to have the uh, placenta be born. Um, the placenta has no bones in it, so it comes out a bit easier yeah, than the baby. There's no skull. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of it, I suppose. Um, 
yeah any thoughts to add gals um speaking of Cecily Begley I was looking up kind of recent research so there was quite a large review done in 2019 about active versus physiological um essentially it still says um using active management can reduce the risk of severe hemorrhage so that means blood loss of more than a liter at the time of mm-hmm. birth but they're still kind of uncertain of this finding because of the low quality evidence that's been made available. Um, it also may reduce maternal anemia. So that's kind of a drop in your, I suppose, your iron stores um, mm. following birth. Um, but it can also cause problems such as postnatal hypertension. So that's raised blood pressure, pain and a return to hospital. Mm-hmm. as well. So I suppose there are pluses and minuses. It's when we're looking at all the research, we're looking at, as you're saying, Tara, it's worldwide. So comparing kind of developing countries versus developed countries is problematic because our needs are different, totally different. and our health yeah. out- and totally, our health yeah. outcomes are different. Yeah. So I suppose it is there has to be a certain level of personal responsibility, given that we're offering standard care. Yeah. People kind of need to do their own research and decide what they feel that they want. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, just discuss it on the day with your midwife as well, because, um, you know, things can change. Yeah. Yeah. as as time goes on. And I think things probably just for people to bear in mind when they're doing their research and things maybe to know about yourself would be things like, have you ever had a history of anemia? Has your iron been low mm. during your pregnancy? If this is not yeah. your first baby, what your blood losses have been like before might give you an indication. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the other thing I was going to say? I forget now. There was something else. Was it something to do with cord clamping? Um, no, but good point. Um, I was going to say, if you know in advance of your third stage of labor that you've had some level of intervention, that you, your decision around active management may change mm-hmm. or may have to change. Yes. yes. So yeah. even if you've done all of your research and you know that physiological management is possible for you, if you then need intervention at some or all stages of your labor, you may need to reconsider that because it is a risk factor, obviously, then if you've needed mm-hmm. intervention all the way along that you're going to need intervention to control this stage of labor mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. talk to me about cord clamping, Tara. Uh, I was actually hoping you might talk to me about that, Roshin. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you want to know? Um, what do you want to know? <laughs> do it, do it, do it, do it. Do cord clamping. I suppose traditionally when you have your baby like years ago hopefully and um, mm-hmm. the and maybe like the kind of media representation is that your the umbilical cord would be just cut straight away yeah um yeah. but now a lot of what we talk about um is delayed cord clamping sorry mm-hmm. did i just scream do cord clamping you, yes yeah. or did i say i okay i meant to say do delayed cord clamping Oh, I thought you meant. I thought you meant like do it, do, like, do it, talk like talk about, about it. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yes, that's what I meant. Please continue. <laughs> um, so you'll hear like phrases like delayed cord clamping, um, optimal cord clamping, this kind of thing. Um, so 
the research and evidence behind that, which we'll link in the show notes, mm. um, is, oh my God, my brain. What's the name of the thing? Wait for white? No, the... Cochrane? No. Oh my God, this is terrible. Like, I follow it on Twitter and everything. There's yes, like a... I know, I'm trying to think of her Blood name. to Baby, oh, okay. is that it? Yes. Um, uh, her name is Amanda Amanda Burley yeah I think we've talked yeah. about there her a little go. bit before um, yeah. anyway so <laughs> this is all about um, let, allowing the cord to pulsate for a certain length of time so that your baby gets the volume of blood that's retained within the placenta and the umbilical cord mm-hmm. so at any given time there's a third Please correct me if I'm wrong on any no, of these numbers, right. right? A third of your baby's blood volume is in transit to, mm-hmm. between the baby and the placenta. Because obviously there's an exchange going on all the time when you're pregnant for your baby to get blood, oxygenated blood and nutrients and everything from you and for your baby to get rid of waste product. Mm-hmm. So there's a the little exchange going on all the time at the time of your baby's birth that exchange hasn't ceased to happen. So there is some blood volume left in that transfer uh, Mm -hmm. kind of location, shall we say. Um, So the research would suggest that there are huge benefits to your baby to allowing the cord to remain intact and for that blood to go back into your baby's system. So basically... There's some, a lot of differing kind of evidence. So maybe like, I suppose, minimum one minute would be what my mm-hmm. think, yeah. thoughts would be up yeah. to five minutes. Would, with yeah, they say would, with yes. active management would be kind yeah. of what people describe when they use the term optimal cord clamping. Yeah. And I think that's because the majority of the transfer will have occurred by have five occurred. minutes. So delayed cord clamping is more of an umbrella term to cover any time period of how long you've left the cord to yeah. cease pulsating. So that's yeah. like if you felt your umbilical cord, the baby's umbilical cord after birth. While it's still intact, you can feel it pulsating like as if you feel your pulse on your wrist. Yeah. It's very cool. I love it. It's amazing. It's absolutely but amazing. There's also research to show that that pulsation can last anywhere between five, five or seven to 23 minutes. Mm. Okay. So then you're saying if we're leaving it to stop pulsating, that could be 23 minutes. But Mm. if we're talking in terms of active management of your third stage of labor, the optimal thing to do for you and for your baby to allow you to have a controlled third stage of your labor and minimize risk of postpartum hemorrhage and for your baby to get the benefits of that blood volume that's left in that Mm. cord and placenta is five minutes, roughly. So somewhere within that five minutes, your midwife would say to you, I'm going to give you the injection of the synthetic oxytocin. Mm -hmm. I'm once the five minutes is up, they would clamp and cut the umbilical cord or they would invite you or your partner to do that. Yeah. About right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, listen, the plan is that we will do an entire episode on people having babies at home and needing or being instructed to clamp mm-hmm. and cut the cord with mm-hmm. various household okay. items. Yeah. But just to say, There's if you no give birth in ho- at home in a hurry, 
if the baby comes unexpectedly, keep the baby skin to skin, keep the cord intact. Everything will be okay. And do not use shoelaces to tie your baby's umbilical cord at or any point. Or manky, dirty headphone cords. Or phone charger cords. Please. Or an old plastic bag. And I'd just there like no to dispel need. the myth that your baby can't take its first breath until the umbilical cord is cut. That is not a thing. Your no. baby can breathe while the cord is still completely intact. So You're don't worry do about that. You're more harm than good by attaching shoes. Like the, there's basically like a, we have one of our hobbies is sending each other newspaper articles <laughs> of people using various accoutrements to um, <laughs> tie off umbilical cords. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's an epidemic. It is. So please, should you find yourself in that position, just leave the cord intact. Everything will be OK. Yeah. And Atara, I think you mentioned it. there is a whole other branch of delayed cord clamping that's uh, termed wait for white, where lots of people now choose to leave the cord completely intact until all that blood volume is gone. And mm. so when you're when the baby is born, the cord obviously looks like blood vessels. Yeah, mm. it's like jellyish kind of blood vessels and you can see the color of the blood going through them. And then when you wait for white, you wait for all that blood volume to have gone into your baby. And the cord mm. just looks like a flat white piece of jelly. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. doing that in an um, unusual scenario at home is completely fine. Absolutely yeah. fine. 100%. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I suppose just on the topic of placentas I mean people want to do different things with their placentas mm. um, different things with their cords like you guys are saying there maybe make a piece of jewellery from the cord or maybe a little keyring. Um, some people get the placenta encapsulated so that's where the placenta is um, dried out and put into capsules um, so some people have found in the past that this helps with maybe if they felt particularly at risk of maybe developing postpartum depression that that helped to you know ease that stress for them um people have felt that it's helped them with their breastfeeding ex experience um and with their you know just postpartum recovery in general um it's really not recommended at all anymore the placental encapsulation just because it is an unregulated um, industry and there were concerns that you know in doing it people were kind of continually ingesting various pathogens different pathogens Bacteria. yes yeah. that you know really mightn't do you any favors postnatally my husband um, asked me a couple of weeks ago if given everything with COVID-19 if people weren't going to be doing placental encapsulation as a service mm. would I consider doing my own Oh, interesting. I was like, first of all, I wasn't like I hadn't made any decisions as to whether I was doing it or not. And also, I think they have really specific equipment <laughs> that's required to do yeah. it. A dehydrator. A yeah. dehydrator. Yeah. I was like, I'm and not just putting it in like a saucepan in the kitchen, love. Like, it was very yeah, funny. You could give it a go. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I suppose that's one thing that people do. And I suppose like people, people are still doing it. So, you know, if you want to do anything with your placenta, um, um, 
if you want to do something with your placenta, just know that you need to um, store it yourself. Like your hospital isn't going to store it for you. You know, if you are if you are doing something with it, um, some people bury their placenta in their garden if they bury it, um, you know, under a tree or something. But I think it does have to go quite deep because you wouldn't want like a fox digging it up and then <laughs> if, a, if, a, if you a placenta was if you found woke up somewhere one day and a fox had dug up your placenta and like left it in your lawn or something. Yeah, I guess the fear would be. That somebody would find your placenta elsewhere and then there would be a, f- you oh know. Oh my God. Be we had to dig up, we had to dig up our something. dead dog a week after we buried him because our neighbours said we shouldn't have buried him in the back garden. Oh, really? Oh, God. So, just a side point, sorry. <laughs> um, Happy Sunday. There is R.I.P. Um, Max. Speaking of dogs, there is a man who takes placentas to Yes, train. up the north. I think that's great. Dogs. Yeah, I think that's really good. I actually would. That would be something I think I would do if I ever end up with a placenta. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I made a print. I made a print of my placentas. Amy, that uh, broke my heart a little bit. <laughs> if I end up with a placenta, that sounded like. As if, obviously, I meant that. Belong. I realized there was no good way to finish that without sounding She's weird. She's been putting them in her bag after work. <laughs> um. Yeah, I yeah, I made a print of my placentas, um They're which lovely. I'm, I can share a picture of. Um Yeah. And yeah, I mean years ago, like in the eighties, the placentas used to go to like ponds and dove and everything for making face creams. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that um, still has not human placenta, but yeah. animal yeah, placenta. But they, used, mm. they used to contain human placenta. Um and yeah, I mean I certainly I wouldn't encourage anybody to ingest their placenta. Certainly not raw, but uh, each to their own. I Yeah, each to their I, own. That's why I always know. say whatever you want to do, if people who are doing this have generally done their own research, I mean, it's, it isn't, it's anecdotal evidence. Yeah. In some situations, it's actually, we kind of say it's not good to do it. And, but if you feel that, eating it and encapsulating is going to make you feel happy. That's fine. But I would say do kind of thorough research on it before yeah. you embark yeah. on it. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay. So um, I think okay. that was a sort of a, a roaming um, sprawl through that. So Amy, tell us um, a little bit more now. Yeah, I suppose we'll, we'll just finish up with, so your placenta has been delivered. The next thing... Um, placenta has been delivered and your midwife um, or your doctor is happy that your bleeding is under control the next thing they're going to do is check and see they're going to have a look at your perineum and check and mm-hmm. see if you need sutures or not so there are I suppose four different types of tear um, there are first degree tears um, they're very small. They affect only the skin and they usually heal quickly. They don't always necessarily need to be repaired. So when we talk about repair, we're talking about people um, doing suturing. So essentially, or people would say being stitched, but suturing is kind of the medical term. Second degree yeah. tear affects the muscle of the perineum and the skin. So the perineum is the area of skin between your vagina and your anus. 
and then third and fourth degree tears. Um, so they're deeper, so they extend into the muscle that controls your anal sphincter um, or your anus. So these tears need to be repaired in an operating theater. Um, so I was looking at some statistics. I'll come back to third and fourth degree tears in a moment. Um, it's kind of difficult because a lot of things, a lot of studies lump in like it's hard to kind of get mm -hmm. x amount of people have first degrees x amount have second degrees um in ireland approximately 90 percent of people on their first baby will have some form of perineal trauma and then a high percentage of those are going to need suturing mm -hmm. it is you know significantly less the second time but it depends on the type of tear that you have the first time so if you have needed an episiotomy well, actually, sorry, I didn't even mention episiotomies. Um, if you've needed an episiotomy, you would be more likely to have a tear the second time around because the mm -hmm. scar tissue is obviously weaker and therefore you're more likely to have a tear. Um, so if you tear naturally the first time, your chances of tearing again the second time will be significantly oh. reduced. Yeah. Um, so for first and second degree tears, obviously not, as I said, not all will need suturing. Second degree tears, we do suture all of those. So it will be done in the room after your delivery. If you have an epidural then and your epidural has been working well, you're not going to feel. Has that the changed being done. research wise, Amy, um, the second degree tear thing? Just I know it's a long time ago since I did my thesis for uh, yeah. our midwifery degree. But basically I was looking into a whole different thing of uh, perineal trauma and assessing it with a measurement tool. But at that time, some of the stuff that I was pulling in my research was mm. that some second degree tears could be left alone. Is it just kind of more standard now that they're all repaired? I suppose, again, it was difficult to kind of find the exact amount that needed suturing, the exact amount that didn't. In a hospital setting, like where I work, if we're identifying it as a second degree, yeah, it is it's typically going to be sutured. sutured. Like yeah. they very rarely, I mean, unless it's something that's kind of a minor graze, it is kind of, or unless the woman themselves is saying, I don't want to be sutured, it will yeah. probably be sutured. Yeah. Okay, if yeah. we're saying yeah. it's kind Just of... Just in case people are maybe finding that when they're out looking on the internet and stuff. That's the thing. It's more it is, to be expected yeah. that it's going to be repaired. It's more to be expected that it will be repaired if it's a second degree. Equally, if it was a first and it was bleeding, it could be repaired as well. Although that isn't, you know, but I mean, then there's a whole other category we could go down with in terms of people assessing the level of tears. That's a whole other kind of kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, but I would say typically first degree, you're not going to be sutured. Second degree, more yep. than likely you will. But again, you can ask the person, what are the risks? What are the benefits? What will happen if I don't have it sutured? Um, is there any way we can wait and see? Like if you were yep. bleeding, is there any way we can wait and see? Um, so the majority of tears will be repaired in the room by a doctor or a midwife, um, both of whom will have been trained in suturing. Um, Epidural, as I say, you won't be able to feel it. They'll be able to give you a top up if you have. If not, if you have just come in and had your baby without pain relief, you will be given a local anesthetic. So it's impossible to say that you won't feel something, but it should not be a situation where you're lying there in pain. If it is painful, you need to say, please, yeah. can we stop? I need more pain relief. Absolutely. Um, 
and people will happily give it to you. Um, for third and fourth degree tears, so the statistics I found for Ireland was showing kind of around 2% of all tears are third or fourth degree tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and then worldwide, it seems to be 3.5. I imagine we are probably in that, you know, again, mm. it's just difficult. Um, I was finding research from kind of lots of different years. So it was, it was difficult to find kind of more recent evidence. Um, so if you sustained a third or fourth degree tear, you'll be transferred to theatre. So you if you don't have an epidural, you will be given a spinal anaesthetic because they'll need to be able to properly look inside and assess the level of tear. And you want somebody doing it under proper theatre lights yeah. Um, adequate pain relief. And afterwards you will be given um antibiotics prophylactic antibiotics to prevent infection you're going to be referred to the physio who will see you and give you exercises and advice on how to care for it and how to kind of get things back to normal and also you'll be seen in the majority of clinics will have um a lot of hospitals will have a perineal clinic where you'll be seen postnatally um again this isn't standard but it is something I suppose you can ask for further follow up. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, people who have third or fourth degree tears, you know, if they're the main thing is that if they're ad- if they're properly identified um, and properly repaired under the right conditions um, and given that the follow up is typically better, people do tend to have good outcomes. Yeah. You know, um, and it tends to heal well. Uh, your risk factors for having kind of a, a bigger, a worse tear would be either a big baby. So people on their first baby, if it's a big baby, a baby over four kilograms, an instrumental delivery or um, a shoulder dystocia where the baby's shoulder gets impacted and it's a more difficult delivery. Um, also need to talk and also episiotomy is another risk factor. So sometimes when they do it, it can extend. Yep. into the anal sphincter. So an episiotomy um, is a cut that's done um, by either your midwife or your doctor and it's to make more space for your baby to be born. So they should always be done with consent. They should There should always be a discussion about it. You should never find out after your delivery that you had yeah. one. It should very much be something that you have to agree to at the time. Um, and... They are done. So the main reasons that they should be done is if there is if your baby is in distress and you Mm. need to deliver the baby quickly, in which case they will do it just as the head is crowning. Yeah. And if you're if they're looking at the baby's heart rate and they're thinking, okay, we need to we need to see this baby quickly. And if you were having an instrumental delivery, so that's either the Vantus, which is the kind of suction cup or the forceps. So they will need to do an episiotomy as well to um, make space for the baby to come out. So rates, again, vary widely. So very low rate in Sweden, I found, was 9.7 percent. Wow. Yeah, then 46 percent in Switzerland and 100 percent in Taiwan. 100 percent. Yeah, in Taiwan. 100% of episiotomies. 
Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's May. not well, that long ago that we had a very high percentage rate here in Ireland. Yes. Yeah. Some some hospitals were, it was as high in Ireland as 46%. Now, okay. they're kind of hoping some other hospitals as well kind of um, collate the data for episiotomies and second degree and tears, second which degree we tears. shouldn't be doing um, as they're different. Yes. So yeah. we're hoping as hospitals come online and, you know, we've got the kind of the online chart that it's going to be much easier to be able to have national statistics on episiotomies. Um, so things that you can do in Ireland as well, I suppose, a good indicator. I, I bumped a babe used to carry the episiotomy rates as far as I knew, but I couldn't find them. Um. But I suppose yeah. it's more, it's kind of in line with what our instrumental rates are. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we do just a really quick chat, I suppose, about instrumental. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, just yeah. kind of yeah. while we're on that topic, um, I suppose, like Amy's mentioned them there, the the different types of instrumental births. So you there's uh, forceps, um, which is um, like two rounded almost like spoons um, that cup either side of the baby's head and help to guide the baby's head down while the the mother is pushing um, or there's a vacuum uh, birth. So that's either a metal cup, a soft rubber cup or like a small plastic cup. And those are attached to um, suction devices that increase the, the pressure and again, help to um bring the baby's head down so to to expedite the the birth of the baby um I suppose the main thing that it comes down to is you know as midwives we don't perform instrumental births there are parts of the world where a midwife will perform an instrumental birth but certainly here in Ireland it doesn't fall under our scope of practice it's not something that we're we're doing here so if an instrumental birth is required it's you know in the presence of of your of the doctor um it's not something that comes absolutely out of the blue. It's something that will be discussed with you uh, probably first by the midwife. He'll be like, do you know what? I think we need to get the doctor in to have a little have a little look and assess the situation. So, you know, whether that's, um, you know, how the baby is, if the baby's really tired, if the baby's becoming distressed in the in the labor and she, the midwife feels that the birth needs to be um, expedited um, or for other reasons, if the mother is becoming unwell like if the mum has a bad temperature and the you know the birth is sort of imminent well what do we need to do to maybe get this moving a little bit quicker and then mm-hmm. we can improve the mum's health you know as well as the baby's um the decision for which instrument is used is down to the scenario like so many things that we talk about everything is so individualized on the day you know it comes down to where the baby is in the pelvis um you know the how the mother is at the time um and what sort of a state I suppose the you know if we're thinking about an instrumental birth we're continuously monitoring the the fetal heart rate at this stage so I suppose what does that fetal heart rate tracing look like um there's always a lot of fear around instrumental birth and you know people will say oh I don't want x or i don't want y and i suppose i don't know as 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 midwives we can't write one or the other off because it's not our it's not our practice 
Would you guys yes, agree? Yes, I agree. Yeah. I, I totally yeah. agree. Um, and there's times when it's neat. You know, there are times when it's 100% th- yeah. necessary. Like I think on a personal level, I could say I would mm-hmm. prefer one over the other or I would really not like to have X or Y. But on a professional yeah. level, when you see the different individualized scenarios where they're needed. Yeah. You're able to say there's a reason why. Yeah. They're there yeah. and why they're used. Like, um, yeah. In some situations, there it's just not possible to get a vacuum cup onto the right part of your baby's head. Yeah, yeah. So you don't want to have a vacuum on the wrong part of your baby's head because it can cause damage. So yeah, then, exactly. You know, if you were leaning more towards preferring a vacuum over a forceps, then in that scenario, a forceps is the only thing that's going to do it. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it all comes down to, like you know you you can have so much of an influence on various things to do with your birth um but you know if you're if your baby decides that they're coming down facing a funny direction well then that's what they're going to do or if they come down with their hand in front of their head well that's what they're going to do and you know we can't control we can't control everything it's not possible to control everything yeah and I think the thing is just to try it's really hard in that moment because it's yeah so heightened you know you're in in the middle of trying to get your baby born it's hard to then be like could you tell me what position the baby's in and if that's the best instrument to use like yeah hopefully that information will be provided to you in an explanation where you are consenting to the instrumental delivery it's not always possible so i think sometimes you have to like remind yourself that the choice of instrument is based, as Tara said, on the individualized scenario. Yeah. Um, and I think I always think, you know, I hate when women are like, oh, I couldn't do it. They they I had an Aww. instrumental because I couldn't do it. And it just breaks my heart because I'm like, but you did do it. You know, you pushed your baby yeah, out you just did. because baby had a bit of guidance at the end doesn't mean that you didn't yeah. do it. Like that's important to know as well, is that you don't stop pushing because they've put an instrument onto your exactly. baby's head it's still, you're still, yeah, you're still doing the work. work as you were doing before if yeah. not more <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely um so yeah but i do think obviously as amy's talking about episiotomies um you know that that it kind of falls under that um, it does it falls under that heading umbrella and yeah. we don't it's it's hard because you don't want to be um you want to try and we want to try and give people information that is non-scary yeah and but also it's kind of remiss not to mention it's remiss not to mention when a third of all deliveries in ireland are yeah absolutely yeah yeah like it has to be discussed um but hopefully and i think you did manage to say that in a way that was. and there's lots more we could go into as well but again like we're trying not to be scary like yeah there's lots of nuances to it I would say if you end up having an instrumental, if you have end up with any type of birth and you have questions or concerns about it afterwards, ask your healthcare providers to just go through with you in detail what yep. to expect after that particular type of birth. Whether exactly. it's, you know, a vaginal birth with a second degree tear or a fourth degree tear or an episiotomy or a particular type of instrumental um, or a cesarean birth. You know, yeah. there's yeah. lots and of equally, other things to know 
yeah. we could go on and on forever, couldn't we? Yeah, and I think when it comes when we come to talking about postnatal in another few weeks, um, you know, it's always worth knowing that even after you've gone home and when your baby's a little bit older, you can contact your hospital, you can go back and you can discuss yeah, your birth then as well when the dust has settled, you know, because sometimes sometimes that's kind of necessary just to kind of go back and be like, okay, can we actually go through things here? What happened here? You know, and can you explain this? Yeah. Um, you know, and whether that is what Amy would describe as the perfect birth from that, you know, article from before or whether, you know, it was something totally unexpected that, that you didn't you didn't expect at all for your birth. Um, so, yeah, that, you know, worth knowing that they are there to to provide that service as well. Um. OK, I suppose I'll just f- quickly finish up with some um kind of advice on what you can do to lessen your tears mm-hmm. um you know there's a certain amount that's in your control there's a lot that isn't um you know i suppose the size of your baby the type of delivery that you have mm-hmm. um the position you're in what position you've been in for the majority of your labor your your nutritional status there's so many factors that contribute um to the way it will go but there are things that you can do mm-hmm. to so I suppose a study that was done to look at what women can do prior to delivery to and during delivery to prevent kind of the more serious tears such as third or fourth degree tears mm-hmm. so from a kind of care provider's point of view um, doing hands-on so that's where you mentioned it Tara where they have their hands on the baby's head as it's delivering and supporting your perineum during mm-hmm. the pushing stage of labor um, there also the use of warm compresses. So either kind of, you know, just like a standard maternity pad or a cloth, having that in warm water and just keeping that on the perineum yeah. during labor increases the blood flow. And that's been shown to reduce kind of the more significant tears as well. Um, prior to going in to have your baby perineal massage, which you can maybe try and turn into some fun kind of thing with your partner um never heard of anyone who said (laughs) never heard of anyone who said that's actually happened um and (laughs) sorry i'm having flashbacks (laughs) flashbacks um and then i suppose um trying to have a controlled delivery of the head which again your midwife um will help you so that's kind of either you know kind of blowing or panting doing smaller pushes um and they that's something that you know we as health professionals that we kind of play a big role in that and kind of providing instructions so that the baby's head comes out nice and slowly and gently Mm. um so there's some devices as well which have come kind of uh, they've been around now for a few years and they're the epino and the anabol both of which do similar things they're devices that are inserted into the vagina i think we might have discussed this actually in in the previous episode and you basically inflate them till you're kind of trying to simulate and you kind of work up to simulate basically the size of the baby's head essentially so it's stretching it's stretching out your vagina um not um irreparably not irreparably exactly Mm -hmm. and i suppose like anecdotally and obviously on the websites and i've heard from lots of people who use them who enjoyed them um (laughs) <laughs> when I looked at kind of interesting sign- choice of words, <laughs> yeah. Okay, them. tell who, me more about uh, that. 
<laughs> who enjoyed <laughs> who the effects. Useful. Who, who found them useful. Um, and then kind of, I suppose, from more scientific research, again, what they've, as all research says, is they need more research. And I suppose we don't know what is the long-term effects on women's pelvic floor of using these devices. Mm. Is there a reason, are we meant to be stretching our vaginas to this size prior to delivery? You know, like there's, yeah. there are, yeah. it does pose some questions. Um but again, as I say, lots of people use them. I read really like some them. interesting, I can't remember if it was on the websites themselves or if it was like reviews on secondary websites of people who were saying that it helped them to learn the feeling of yeah. controlling the delivery of the head which I thought okay. was interesting. So there's yeah. apparently two kind of types of exercises that you can do with them, that they're inserted into the vagina and pumped up like that to help stretch the skin, mm. similar to what you would do with your perineal massage. Um, but that also then you practice expelling the inflated, like oh, kind of okay. controlling the expulsion of the inflated device so mm. that you get that, that muscle sensation. control as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm not so sure. again, like sure. obviously more research, more evidence needed as to the longer term effects of that. Yeah. We need the input of a physio on that, I think. Mm. So that's it. Um, I think we just have some, a couple of dear Fanny questions. Yeah. Yeah. Roisin, um, have you got let them? Let me here? have a little. Yeah. Let me have a little look here where they're gone. Oh, and we have to talk about really quickly, Tara. You're going to tell us our feminist of the episode, maybe um, after I do these. Cool. Um, So thank you to everyone who submitted us questions. I think we've had multiple questions over time on our Instagram about birth specifically. But if we Mm -hmm. don't get to your question, just ask us again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... One of our questions about birth this time was, does it get easier the second time around? So I assume they, from that, the person maybe means the the pushing part, mm. the feeling of getting baby out. Is and it, the labor maybe as well. Yeah. Is it shorter? Is it, mm. you know? Um, and mm. I suppose <laughs> there could be a million answers to that question. Um, yeah. You're looking at it in the context of your first birth. And I suppose we would always say no two births are the same. Some people will say, like we said, um, some people's idea of a really difficult, unenjoyable birth is one that is intervention free and really fast and your baby flies out of you. And another that's another person's perfect birth. Um, So I suppose try not to look add it too much in the context of your first birth because no two births are the same typically I suppose my experience would be that women would say their pushing is quicker and easier Mm -hmm. labor tends to be a bit shorter because you're you have a bit of muscle memory going on there and you don't necessarily your body doesn't have to do all that work of thinning out and effacing your cervix Mm. um before you get into the dilatation type yeah. work. So it can happen. It can shorten your first stage of labor. Um, 
but yeah, I think there's no guarantees, but generally speaking, our overall experience would be that people say it's a little bit quicker and easier the second time around. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Then we had a question about postpartum hemorrhage. So Tara, maybe you could give us. You talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did, so, yeah, I don't think we did it in the part where we were talking about yeah. bleeding, actually. We probably should so have, yeah. how likely is it to have a postpartum bleed the second time around? This person says, I'm a bit freaked because I had one with my first. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose a risk factor for postpartum hemorrhage, you know, we, we would have kind of a list of risk factors that we would think of. Um, one of them is being a first time mom, but also one of them is a history of having a previous postpartum hemorrhage um so once that history is known about about you you know your midwives will automatically be um offering active management of the Mm -hmm. third stage of labor um and not only i suppose giving the injection of the oxytocin into the into the leg but also um you know giving um a drip of the oxytocin as well. Um, and then I would say the best thing that you can probably do antenatally is just um, find out what your iron level is. So probably around the 32 week mark and um, just make sure that, you know, you you have a good level of iron stores there. Um, yeah. So that if a bleed did happen second time around, um, that you could, you have the stores there, the capacity to cope with it. And generally, I would say if you are on your second time around, because we know you've had that risk factor there, it's more likely to be more controlled. Controlled, you agree? Yeah. Because we're kind of more prepared. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll have, you'll be going into your labor with a line in like a cannula in your arm. They will have had taken your bloods. Yeah. Um. So everyone will be kind of prepared for it but doing things to try and avoid that the second time so, yeah so, so I, I think tell so, people to kind of to try not to worry too yeah. much sometimes the first time around if it happens and it's really unexpected it can seem a little bit frantic yeah. um generally speaking if it's happening a subsequent time it's a little bit more controlled so it can be a little bit calmer and feel a little bit better yeah even if it does have to happen yep um and then lastly we had a question just about a previous um emergency i'm assuming emergency section due to placental Mm. abruption um Mm. and whether or not that should stop you having another baby so i think again kind of maybe two parts to that should you have another baby as in should you conceive again and have another baby or should it stop you having a vaginal delivery on another baby Mm. so no it shouldn't stop you conceiving another baby if you want to have another baby have one but going into it with the full awareness of your risk factors I think is important yeah um and then secondly should it stop you having a vaginal delivery on another baby no it absolutely shouldn't um but you will be observed very closely in your pregnancy probably with additional scans for placental location if it was an emergency c-section delivery for your placental abruption you obviously have a risk factor there of being a previous cesarean section so there'll be kind of um heightened monitoring around your scar and tenderness and that kind of thing and bleeding and then you'll just be closely monitored in your labor 
so you will have continuous monitoring um for your baby um they'll be watching you very closely in your labor for any signs of pain around your previous c-section scar or bleeding and all that being said with all of that additional monitoring we have all met people who've gone on who've had placental abruptions who've gone on to have very low risk pregnancies and deliveries for their subsequent um babies so just engage really well with your healthcare professionals and be aware of your risk factors but know that it's absolutely possible to have another baby and to have a low risk pregnancy and delivery so that's um our there are dear fanny uh questions for this episode um i think we're just gonna give our feminist of the episode yeah and then that's us and we'll see you back again for our we'll go through cesarean birth in our second parter Okay, so our feminist of the episode is Katie Vigos. Um, she is a registered nurse and a mother of three who runs the Empowered Birth Project. So it's a blog, started off as a blog and then became an Instagram page and it's all about birth. So I actually did a project on her in college for my master's. Um, so she was really instrumental in changing Instagram's laws around um, birth photography. So she started the uncensored uncensored birth um, campaign. So she started a petition and basically she, the whole thing was around Instagram used to classify birth photography as pornographic content. Um, so ridiculous. Which obviously, yes, like it's, it's you know, Obviously, there are people who are into birth as porn, but it's oh, extremely niche market. <laughs> it's extremely niche. Um, so, yeah, so I think tens of thousands of people um, signed it and these images are no longer marked as pornographic. So she is currently working as a nurse. She actually initially was a doula um, and she is working in an ICU so it's a beautiful she yeah, did so it's a beautiful much. It's a gorgeous, account, we've talked one about of my favorite um and I think it's a really good resource for people who have kind of maybe not seen a lot of birth before like some of it is quite intense imagery but I think it's mm. really good to see loads of different kinds of birth and ways of birthing and I loads agree. of different experiences of birth. And she really focuses in on the kind of individualized aspects of people's stories of what their births were, what they meant to them, what context it was in, like their previous like pregnancies or previous pregnancy losses. So it's really good to be able to find imagery and stories that maybe fits what you're going through and say, oh, like this is possible. Just see yourself in other birth stories, I think is really nice. I agree. So that's... So I think we better leave it yeah. here. We tried to keep it brief. Um, <laughs> it didn't happen. Did we do that? <laughs> <laughs> so follow us on all the usual channels. Um, Yannick Boom Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to email us, we really like getting emails. Um, and we're at Boom Yannick on our Insta. Um, yeah, and we love people sending us messages. And many thanks again to our Uber feminist partners who helped to set up our remote uh, recording situation here. And all at Denmark Studios. Bye. Bye. Bye.
While we are medical professionals and we love answering your questions, this pod should never be used in place of a real-life consultation with a midwife or doctor. If you have a serious concern about your health or a medical emergency, please go to your GP or to a hospital.